0: Section 5 of The Morality of Marriage and Other Essays on the Status and Destiny of Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sweta The Morality of Marriage and Other Essays on the Status and Destiny of Woman. By Mona Caird. Marriage, Part 3. The Lot of Woman Under the Rule of Man. Part 3. The lot of woman under the rule of man. There was no shame on earth too black to blacken. That much praised woman's face. Charlotte Stetson Perhaps it may be said without much exaggeration that the cure for social ills is the clear realization of their existence. But the prescription seems simpler than it really is. People are indeed ready enough to cry out against the innumerable progeny of evils that spring out of some great fundamental wrong, but it sometimes takes centuries before a whole nation comes to recognize that parent wrong in its relationship with its vast and objectionable family. The individuals of that family differ among themselves, and differ according to the conditions of their age, so that in, say, the 15th century, they will be fathered on one institution, and in the 16th, mankind will find some other contemporary abuse on which to lay the blame of their birth meanwhile the guilty ancestor of them all lies cherished in the very heart of the society that it ruins we have seen that among these patriarchs of evil the subjection of woman must be classed as in the case of a sufferer from blood poisoning some of the symptoms may be mitigated but new distresses will follow the supposed cures until the poison itself is driven out of the system it has often been objected, granting that these evils are born of the particular parent, how can they be cured? And the answer simply is, they must be cured only by making mankind en masse recognize that they are the offspring of that parent. The rest follows inevitably, if sometimes rather slowly. It is with the view of tracing the career of this parent evil, viz, the relationship of man to woman, that these essays have been written, to reveal the ferocious creature in his true color, is to deprive him of claws and fangs and all the paraphernalia of destruction, but the overwhelming difficulty lies in the revealing. It is now proposed, with exactly the same object in view, to take instances from history illustrating the condition of women, and by reminding ourselves of these well-known facts to show how unmistakable is the ancestry of these conditions whose horror is realized in succeeding centuries, but never to the same extent in their own it is the habit of most people to read the chronicles of the past as if some mystic barrier separated that bygone period from our own enlightened times to read thus is to lose one of the most valuable lessons of history the following instances are taken from gibbon whose impartiality on this subject cannot be questioned after the defeat of the goths by the emperor clodius who nevertheless was very anxious to improve on the discipline of his troops the Gothic women were divided into groups and allotted to the Roman soldiers, two or three to each. This proceeding was thus officially recognized, nay, ordered, in one of the best disciplined of the imperial armies, and from this much may be inferred. If the true internal history of warfare could be written, it would surely be found that the full horror of the scourge of mankind had fallen upon women. The chief of the Roxolani had deserted the standard of Hermanric, king of the Goths into whose power the luckless wife of the traitor chief afterwards fell. In order to revenge himself upon her husband, Hermanric ordered her to be torn asunder by wild horses. To ill-treat the property of his enemy, let it be observed, was to gratify his thirst for vengeance. During the Gothic invasion of Greece under Alaric, the beautiful women were driven away with the spoil and cattle of the flaming villages. The female captives, Gibbon adds, submitted to the laws of war, beauty was the reward of valor and the greeks could not reasonably complain of the abuse which was justified by the example of heroic times the next instance carries us to the fifth century and to the scene of the mighty conflict between the franks and the huns in central europe the Thuringians, who served in the army of the huns under attila massacred their hostages as well as their captives two hundred young maidens were tortured with exquisite and unrelenting rage their bodies were torn asunder by wild horses or their bones crushed under the weight of rolling wagons and their unburied limbs were abandoned on the public roads as a prey to dogs and vultures without sharing in any of the excitement the glory or the rewards of war women have always had to accept its worst risks and to endure its most terrible insults in the times of peace men were able to defend their possessions wives included to dispute a monopoly in the latter kind of property has always been and still is the unpardonable offence but as soon as the country was disturbed by war houses and cities were plundered and women shared the fate of the rest of man's possessions in the institutes of manu we find precisely the same views set forth with authority though here there are some faint traces of the mother age as in the asserted venerableness of a mother who surpasses in that quality a thousand fathers however her extreme venerableness appears to avail the indian woman but little but they termed the Deva rite, the gift of a daughter, after having adorned her to a sacrificial priest rightly doing his work. That is, adds the translator in a note, the priest who performs a sacrifice receives a maiden as a part of the feat. The author of the Institutes makes the following assertion Houses which women not honored curse, those as if blighted perish utterly. Also, where women grieve, that family quickly perishes here again is a faint glimpse of the ancient faith yet the real trend of the teaching of manu in common with the teaching of all prophets until this day has been of a kind to cause women to grieve and to curse most bitterly perhaps that is why so many houses and nations have indeed utterly perished though of bad conduct and debauched manu continues in his more patriarchal vein or even devoid of good qualities a husband must always be worshipped like a god by a good wife most English readers indignantly exclaim against this maxim. Nevertheless, this is precisely the doctrine that English wives have been taught from time immemorial, though in language which veils the admonition in a manner necessary for the protection of modern sensibilities. We like to have our survivals of barbarous old doctrine expressed with true refinement. Submissive deference to the husband simply because he is the husband, by the wife simply because she is the wife, still remains a defended canon of feminine morality. "'Of course, my dear, if your husband approves,' is a familiar phrase on the lips of women of the last generation, nor is it by any means obsolete today. Doubtless there is an instinctive desire on the part of many women, who were brought up in the old faith, to prevent their sisters from moving beyond the lines of that bounded female existence in the earlier half of the century. The idea is entirely modern that the wife has the right to choose her own mode of existence without waiting for her husband's permission." an amiable couple would be likely to consult one another's wishes within reason but the idea of approval in the old interpretation belongs unmistakably to the order of sentiment which manu set forth for the guidance of the women of india a sentiment which there led to child marriage sati and the ill-treatment of widows For women says manu there is no separate sacrifice nor vow nor even feast if a woman obeys her husband for that she is exalted to heaven translate this into current terms and we have a most familiar homily the true woman has no interests separate from those of her home no separate vow nor feast for her her highest ambition and her noblest vocation are to be found in that sacred circle and so on ad limitum. as for the last quoted sentence of manu if a woman obeys her husband for that she is exalted to heaven annie s Swan gives a ready-made modern version and i further hold she says that having undertaken the duties and responsibilities matrimony involves god will require at her hands an account of that stewardship before any other the claims of the stewardship seem to be too manifold to leave much time for the construction of sentences the one just quoted recalling the following example of similar formation replying in the affirmative the coffin lid was again closed Volumes might, of course, be filled with the facts gleaned from all times, illustrating the same underlying idea in different manifestations, mild or terrible, according to the general state of civilization of the country and the age. There are indeed but few homes in England, at this moment, that do not offer examples of this kind, though in many, probably in most cases, the idea on which they rest has found its least degrading and least obvious form of manifestation. Yet it is a fact, and a somewhat startling one, that the tacit beliefs on which the best of english homes are founded setting aside of course unorthodox exceptions are those which render possible and law protected the outrages suffered by women in the very worst in mongolia there are large cages in the marketplace wherein condemned prisoners are kept and starved to death the people collect in front of these cages to taunt and insult the victims as they die slowly day by day before their eyes in reading the history of the past and the literature of our own day it is difficult to avoid seeing in that mongolian marketplace a symbol of our own society with its iron cage wherein women are held in bondage suffering moral starvation while the thoughtless gather round to taunt their lingering misery let anyone who thinks this exaggerated note the manner in which our own novelists for instance past and present treat all subjects connected with women marriage and motherhood and then let him ask himself if he does not recognize at once its ludicrous inconsistency and its insults to womanhood open and implied the very respect so called of man for woman being granted solely on the condition of her observing certain laws dictated by him conceals a subtle kind of insolence it is really the pleased approval of a lawgiver at the sight of obedient subjects woman has certainly been the ugly duckling of society hunted insulted threatened or cajoled by her masters scouted scolded admonitioned betrayed suffering all the evils of her age and country while enjoying not a tith of its compensating privileges held in tutelage yet punished for all sins and errors with a ferocity and a persistence specifically reserved for the sex which is called weak and specifically directed against those who are held incapable of the responsibilities of freedom and of citizenship Truly, the fate of woman, in its injustice, its debasement, and humiliating pain, is a tragedy such as Shakespeare never wrote nor Aeschylus dreamt of. End of section five. Read by Sueta, Toronto, January twenty eighth, twenty twenty three.